Let's turn together to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And our sermon today continues the theme uh, that we spent youth camp looking at and celebrating together, this theme of true happiness. Our sermon title today is Joy Inexpressible. And that's a phrase that we'll see here in 1 Peter 1 in verse 8. Joy inexpressible, this phrase used to make clear that what we've been talking about at youth camp and what we're talking about here today is a happiness that is beyond words. It is an inexpressible, unspeakable joy. One commentator said, the words have not yet been created that would do justice to the depths of this kind of joy. The human tongue has not yet been found that can articulate the riches of this joy. So that's what I'm going to be talking about for the next 30 minutes or so. Every human tongue will fail in this endeavor. Words have not yet been created for it. God says it is a joy inexpressible, and we make our lame attempts to seek to express the inexpressible when it comes to the joy of the Christian life. We've been studying this book together, 1 Peter, and today we look at verses 6 through 9, but I'd like to begin reading in verse 3. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That was the verses we looked at last week, and now we come to verse 6. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God bless the preaching of his word. It's in verses 3 through 5 that God has reminded us of the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That all who put their faith in Christ have this glorious inheritance in heaven and that we are from now until that day being guarded by the power of God. So that when we look at the future and what God promises to us in the gospel, the appropriate response to that is captured in the beginning of verse 6. To all of this 
great mercy that God has shown, what he's done in causing us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Uh, we rejoice in hope. We rejoice, we rejoice in our future. We rejoice in the joy of heaven. It is a joy that has broken into our lives and fills our days with true happiness and with certain hope. The passage at that point then shifts gears where we shift from focusing on this glorious future to the challenges of the present. We move from considering what will one day be to what is now our experience. And what we have in verses 6 through 9 is the realization and explanation that there are two present realities, Peter identifies them, that have the potential to diminish our happiness. Two realities, and each is marked by the word though and the word now. So this is your future, in this you rejoice, though now life is not what it will one day be. Verses 6 and 7 say that we are still happy, though now... We are grieved by trials, the whole reality of trials of life. And then in verses 8 and 9, it says that we are still happy in this we rejoice, though now we do not see Jesus. These are things that are true of our lives here today. Now, in this world, we are grieved by trials. Some of you presently grieved by great trials. And you haven't even seen the one that you are building your whole life and your whole future around. The one who is your joy, the one who is your hope, the one who is your savior. So you experience suffering now, and we haven't seen the Jesus we love with our eyes. Even so, God wants us to remember that his people have inexpressible joy through trials, that's verse 6 and 7, and inexpressible joy in Jesus Christ, that's verses 8 and 9. God's desire is to prepare us to maintain joy in the midst of sorrow and suffering of many kinds. Some of you may have come in today and new to the church, and you just think, well, what have I stepped into? There's lots of noise, there is lots of shouting, there is loud music, there is celebrating. But then we realize as the service goes on that this joy is not a superficial joy that is unaware of the reality of trials and hurt in a fallen world. Wasn't it so striking that in each one of the baptism testimonies that we heard, we have the reality of hardship. The reality of suffering, trials that are sure to come in life. And in our prayers, together we pray for those who are experiencing loss. For those who are even now in a place of grief. And there are many of us grieved by various trials. This weekend, I received an update from my dear brother and our fellow pastor, Alan Redrup. Alan, as many of you know, was recently diagnosed with a somewhat rare and terminal disease called multiple systems atrophy, MSA. 
The disease has a seven to 10 year lifespan that they give you depending on when the symptoms started. And some of this for Alan has been going on for five years or so, so he does not know how much time he has left. Uh, his remaining time appears to be short. His days are difficult. He texted me this morning how grieved he was that he's not able to come. Last night was one of the more difficult nights that our brother has, has had. His symptoms include chronic fatigue and migraines and lightheadedness and night sweats and disturbing dreams. And things only seem to be getting worse for our dear brother. You would think that a man like that in that situation would be despairing. You would think that joy would be far from him. But not Alan and not his wife, Linda. Alan shared with me what has been profound are those moments when I can't sleep at 3 a.m. and I'm able to pray unlike I've ever prayed before. Moments when I begin to think about how close I am to seeing Jesus and there is real joy. He said, it's very hard for me to think of the sadness and grief that my family will endure, so I try not to think about that much. But when it's real quiet, I can think about seeing Jesus and being in a place that is called paradise where I will understand enough so that my tears will be gone. I will be in glory. Glory, unimaginable, unspeakable joy. And so he shared, God has been gracious to me to draw near. And Linda and I have found help at his throne of grace. No question that it's hard for both of us sometimes, but his grace has been more than sufficient. The kind of joy, the kind of happiness that we maintain in the Christian life is a life that knows the reality of sorrow and pain and hardship and loss in a fallen world. And part of the reason that I wanted to share Alan's example for you youth today in particular. Alan is one of the founding pastors of this church. He is an example to me and to every one of you. You have the privilege of growing up in a church in which you are surrounded by examples of men and women who have clung to their Savior in the midst of trials of many kinds. And I urge you to look to them and to follow their example, to not have a joy that goes out the window as soon as trials come our way, but to have a joy that is maintained in the midst of every difficulty that may come our way. Follow their example of faith and joy and love for Christ through many trials. It occurs to me even in speaking on this theme, I do my best with my words to preach the text, but there are lives of men and women in this church and the pages of their lives preach this sermon far more powerfully than I ever could. And so let us learn from one another and press on through the inspiration that we have through the example of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Inexpressible joy through trials, inexpressible joy in Christ. Let's look at each of these points. First, inexpressible joy through trials. It is so important to understand that Christianity does not minimize, does not ignore the reality of trials or the grief that they cause. But we do have in God's word, in Christianity, a way of thinking about 
these difficulties. We are equipped to walk through trials and even to maintain joy in the midst of trials. What we learn in these verses is something about the duration of trials, the diversity of trials, and the design of trials. First, the duration of trials is there in that phrase, though now for a little while. For a little while is a reminder that there will be an end to the troubles. You know how sometimes it's like this with little kids. You get in the car for very short car rides. Like we're talking my house, two miles away to the church building. And as soon as we get in, are we there yet? You know, are we there yet? It feels like forever. In reality, it is only a little while. And so it is with the sorrows and hardships that we know in this life. All of life is referred to here as a little while. Because we know that one day, one glorious day, our trials will end. For a little while, we experience sickness and tears. For a little while, there is chronic pain. For a little while, we lose loved ones. For a little while, we are mistreated by others. But friends, remember today, take hope and comfort and joy in knowing that your present trials, however long you have endured them, some for years, some for decades, your present trials will one day come to an end. God takes your sorrow, he takes every trial in your life, and he writes a little while over every earthly sorrow. That's the duration of trials. But also we see the diversity of trials, and this is a very important point and a pastoral one that Peter makes at this point. You have been grieved by various trials. He'll focus in the remainder of this letter in a heightened way on the mistreatment that we face in the hands of those who oppose Christianity, those who marginalize, those who are of the faith. But here is a reference to trials of many kinds. It is all in inclusive when it comes to the kinds of suffering and sorrow that we know in this world. And the point here is that there is a significant range, a variety of the kinds and causes of pain and sorrow that we know in this world. The Bible talks about a lot of different forms of suffering. You can suffer because of your own sin and mistakes. You can suffer for doing good. Uh, there's the whole category of the, of the suffering of loss, including death. And then there is mysterious suffering, suffering that doesn't appear to make any sense. And not only is there great diversity of suffering, but we are diverse people with diverse temperaments who respond differently to those trials. Have you ever noticed that? That not only are trials different, but we are different. And this is an important point for us to realize. Pastor Tim Keller in his book on suffering uh, says this, he says, a one-size-fits-all prescription for handling suffering is bound to fail because not only does suffering come in so many different forms, but sufferers themselves come with so many different kinds of temperaments and spiritual conditions. And so he says, the Bible forbids us to use a single template for handling pain and grief. And he says, Every affliction then is virtually unique. And it means that every sufferer will need to find a somewhat different path through it. Uh, so one example of this, I walked through uh, my daughter, her battle with cancer when she was two years old. Some of you have had your own battle with cancer. 
The reality is those two situations in terms of the kinds of fears and sorrows and temptations that we experienced, uh, that you experienced and that I experienced as a parent, we're likely quite different. We're likely quite distinct. We sometimes like to look for commonalities in our suffering, which isn't entirely bad, but it can have a tendency of flattening the differences among sufferers. And so it will help when you walk through trials and to, to care for others, to keep in mind the diversity of trials, that we experience trials of many kinds. And as Keller says, every affliction then is virtually unique, and it means that every sufferer will need to find a somewhat different path through it. And we need to be a people who care for one another in our life together with love, with understanding, with sensitivity through the various kinds of suffering that we face as a church family. And then we also see the design of trials, and the most emphasis is placed here. In verse 7, it's describing the goal, God's purpose, his design in the trials that we face as his children, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, so that that faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. God has a sovereign design in every one of your trials. He has a purpose. He does not waste a single trial. In fact, what is God's design in trials? It is to bless us. How? What does God do in trials? Well, trials prove the genuineness of our faith, the tested genuineness of of your faith. It is the reality, and let me get the attention of the youth here again. Most kids who grow up in Christian homes and in a church want to be a Christian from a very young age. One of the reasons is because everyone around you is a Christian. There comes a time in our lives when trials come, when the world entices us, when the church and other Christians disappoint us and sin against us, when we experience loss, there are these times when trials come and that is the moment that our profession of faith is tested and the genuineness of our faith is revealed. It is very difficult to determine the genuineness of faith at 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. But as we emerge into the teenage years, and trials increase in our lives. What is God doing? He is revealing the genuineness of faith. Trials have a way of making clear what is fake and what is real. And so trials come into our lives and they will have that effect. He's testing and proving the genuineness of your faith, he also designs that trials reveal the beauty of our faith by, by strengthening, by beautifying our faith. More precious than gold, though it is tested by fire. Suffering is an essential part of God's plan for our growth. And one of the things you realize in life is that people who have not suffered much are often people of a very shallow faith. They are fragile 
people who understand very little of life in this world. But it is those who have suffered greatly that often have a faith that has been fired in the furnace that stands out as strikingly glorious and beautiful and pure against the backdrop of the trials of this life. The whole illustration of gold in the furnace, and we sing about this, is a, is a powerful one. It's from this passage. But think about this, okay? When, when a goldsmith puts gold in the fire, what's his goal? <laughs> the goal is not to destroy the gold. Did you know, in fact, the fire will not hurt the gold. What does the fire do? It burns off the impurities so that the gold is even more valuable. And so it is with suffering. You and your faith are more precious than gold in the sight of God. And he has put you in the furnace of affliction not to destroy you. Not because he is against you, however distant he may feel. However great the mystery of suffering may be, and it is great. He has put you in the furnace of affliction, not to destroy you, but to refine you. To purify your faith. The more you suffer, the more valuable and precious and fortified your faith becomes. It's why James 1 can say, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Excuse me? Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is making you more like Christ. If your life abounds with hardships and suffering, we can assume that the God who loves you is doing a glorious work. You may not be able to see it now, but he is refining your faith. He is strengthening you. He's making you the kind of man or woman who is steadfast in his grace, who when the future wave of trial and moments of temptation come, you won't just be blown away and knocked over. You're, you will have roots that go deep into Christ. You'll be steadfast in the midst of suffering. You won't let go of the hope that you have. Why? Because your faith has been fired by God in the furnace of suffering. It's what he's doing. One other goal of suffering that we see here in God's ultimate design is the reward of our faith. That our faith, verse 7, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Certainly praise and glory to God, yes, but also when Christ returns, your commendation will be great. You will be honored. You will be commended. You will be given a crown of glory, which is so much different than how the world will relate to you for your faith in Christ. <laughs> Hope you teens understand that. The world will not give you any praise and glory and honor for following Christ. But when Christ returns, it will be different because in God's eyes, 
your steadfastness of faith, your joy in Christ, your perseverance in the midst of trials of many kinds is glorious in the sight of God. And it is preparing glory for you, your present trials. And so we do not lose heart, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Inexpressible joy in the midst of every trial that comes our way. And second point, inexpressible joy in Jesus Christ. The second challenge to our happiness is the reality that we have not physically seen our Savior. Though you have not seen him, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You haven't seen him. Peter's writing to these believers. Peter saw him. He's writing to a people who hadn't seen him. But Peter, Peter saw Jesus. He walked closely with him for several years. Peter hung out with him. Peter ate meals with him. Peter enjoyed his company. Peter saw Jesus when Jesus healed Peter's own mother-in-law of her fever. Peter saw Jesus that day when Jesus lifted Peter from the water he had been walking on when Peter began to sink. Peter saw Jesus teaching. He saw him with children gathered around him. Peter saw Jesus betrayed. Peter saw Jesus with nails in his hands as he hung on a wooden cross for our salvation. Peter saw Christ risen from the dead. Peter sat with Jesus by a fire on the shore of Lake Galilee and ate bread and fish with him after he had died and risen again. Peter saw him and Peter loved him. What he had seen of the Savior with his own eyes was forever etched in his mind, filling him with love for this man who was unlike anything the world had ever known. Peter loved him, and now he writes to a people, including us, who haven't seen Jesus. But what matters, he says, is not whether you have seen him physically, but whether you have seen him by faith. God has called us to live by faith and not by sight. Peter was there when Jesus said to doubting Thomas after the resurrection, John 20, verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You haven't seen, yet you believe. Jesus says, blessed are you. Happy are you. No, you haven't seen, but faith is alive and you believe. We believe he is Lord of all. We believe he died for our sins. We believe he rose on the third day. 
We believe he is worthy of our lives. We don't need to see him physically in this life because we have been given the spirit of Christ within us who has caused us to love Jesus, to believe in Jesus, and to rejoice in Jesus. The Spirit of God does that in our lives. Jonathan Edwards did this massive uh, treatise on the essence of true Christianity called religious affections. And he turned to 1 Peter 1.8 for the basis of all of that. He believed that this one verse describes the nature of authentic, real deal Christianity more than any other verse in Scripture. What does Christianity involve? He says, love for Jesus. Joy in Jesus. You love him and you rejoice in him. I love the, the tenderness of those words. Those, though you have not seen him, you love him. Meaning he is exceedingly precious to you. You love him for who he is. You love him for what he has done for you. You love him because of the great love that he has shown you in dying for your many sins. I'm reminded in John 21, when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? And that's the same question that Jesus asks us today. He wants to be the king of our hearts. He wants to reign in our affections. He wants to be the pearl of great price to us. He wants to be the object of your affections and of your delight. But notice Peter, Peter doesn't say here, start loving Jesus more, though that would be a fine point and a good and true one and one we should apply the point here is not a challenge, but an encouragement to genuine believers. You love him, don't you? You love your Savior. You have not seen him, but you love him. Your heart melts at the thought of what he has done for you. You live for him. You desire to please him. You rejoice in his love. The life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. And the result of considering all his mercies to you is that you love him. You love him and your heart overflows with adoration, with praise, with thanksgiving, with genuine affection to the Lord. And listen, if your life doesn't reveal this genuine love to Christ, here's the things, I'm saying this again to you teenagers. The thing about our lives is that who or what we love is really obvious, <laughs> right? You, you can't hide it. If you would have seen me as a teenager, you're going to be like, hmm, what does he like? It was rollerblading, all right? Every day and sleeping in my rollerblades. Why? Because I'm all in on this. I'm committed to this. I'm passionate about this. When we look at someone's life, the things that they love tend to be quite obvious. And here's what I do want to say to anyone who's here, if there is, as you examine your own heart, no presence of a genuine love for Christ, as imperfect as that love may be, you even long to love him more than you presently do. 
But if there is no genuine affections, no genuine love, no delighting in Christ, it's worth doing serious reflection and getting counsel on whether you're a Christian at all. Because it is a mark of the Christian. To be a Christian is to believe in Christ and to love Christ and to rejoice in Christ. The ultimate secret to a happy, joy-filled life is to rejoice in Jesus. It, this text points out a few things about this joy. You rejoice with, doesn't just say with joy, you rejoice with joy. It's this double joy that is inexpressible. It is unspeakable. There are no words to describe it. And it is full of glory. It is a radiant joy. It is the joy of God himself. It is the joy of heaven breaking into our lives. And what we have here is not a rejoicing in the future. It is a joy that exists here and now. It is a joy that exists in the midst of a fallen world. We are called to be a people of inexpressible joy because we are the recipients of inexpressible grace in Christ and his grace produces joy in our hearts. We rejoice in the Lord and again I say rejoice. We want to be a church deeply marked by love for Jesus and joy in Jesus. That is why the starting point of who we are is that we exist to treasure Christ. He is our treasure. He is our delight. He is our love and our glory. And I need to move toward a close. Verse nine, again, refers to that future salvation that will one day be ours when Christ returns. And we've seen it, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just be reminded through that verse and know that we will one day see the one whom we have believed in and loved. And on that day, we will rejoice in him and love him like never before. We will obtain the outcome of our faith, the final salvation of our souls. Let me do this because I've addressed the youth. I want to invite everyone to stand. And if I can have the band come back up and I want the youth to make your way up to the front again like you were during the singing. I have some things I want to say just to you. It's on my heart to just address you young people one more time for a second. So youth, campers, team leaders, anyone who was up here before, come on forward. I just need to, God laid it on my heart this morning to address you as directly as I possibly can. You're still too far away from me. I'm about to come down and stand in the middle of where you are, all right? Listen, that works, that works. I'm coming right here. Listen, listen, listen. Listen, listen. This verse, I think that it, there's a reason that God had those verses, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, for today. He's drawing your heart more deeply into Christ. He has that word for you as, as young people. And here's the thing. This world is telling you that joy inexpressible is out there somewhere in this world. And it's gonna be tempting and it's going to draw you. And I, this is why everyone in this church prays for you. You bring us so much joy because of your joy in the Lord. 
And I want to urge you with everything I can to keep delighting in Christ. Make, the moment you find your greatest joy in anything other than Christ, use it as a caution to say, Lord, I want to love you more than anything else. And here's the thing. You guys are doing an incredible job standing firm in the midst of suffering. It occurred to me as you guys were sharing, some of you have already experienced greater trials in life than I have. For some of you, though, you haven't faced any great trials yet. And I just want you to know trials are going to come. Greater hardships are going to come. And in those moments when trials come, don't mistake the fiery testing of your faith for the failure of your faith. Okay? That trials don't mean that your faith is failing. Dark moments don't mean that your faith is failing. Those are the moments where God wants your faith to function in a whole new way. And so I'm, it's my prayer for every single one of you because we've, we've had people grow up in the church, you know this. They've gone through Promise Kingdom. They've been a part of our, of, they've been to all of the youth camps and they are presently not living for Christ. There is no belief in Christ. There is no love for Christ. There is no joy in Christ. And so we never take for granted. We never take for granted that, oh, just, yeah, this is what we do. We kind of, we're, we're a, a, a Christian factory. We just produce Christians here. no unless the Spirit of God continues to work powerfully among our youth, then we will not be a church that extends into the next generation. And so keep on fighting for that faith that is more precious than gold. Value that faith. as your, So many things the world will say, this is most valuable. God says, no, your faith, that's the gold. That's what matters. Tend to that faith. Tend to your belief in Christ. Value that above everything else. And then as you do this, let me just say one more thing. Tend to your affections. All right, I talked to you about what you love, the things that we love. Have the kind of Christianity, the kind of true religion that engages your heart. All right, aim for that. This kind of joy and happiness and even energy that you show, God doesn't want that to just be a youth camp thing. He doesn't even want it to just be something that marks your youth. There is a joy, there is a happiness, there is an energy for Christ that can mark the rest of your lives. And so live for that. Be someone who, no matter what comes your way, I'm going to believe Christ. I am going to love Christ. I am going to rejoice in Christ with a joy inexpressible. All right, y'all can stay here as we sing. I love each one of you.